Amen. Well, good morning. Let's say a particular word of welcome to those of you who are new, new here. You fought through hurricanes and power outages to come be a part of things here live or even online. Thanks for uh, being a part of things. And uh, again, I want to say if, if, if you here in, in person or at home are in a hard spot, if there's a limb blocking your driveway or you need some help with anything, we've got a, a, a team of folks that loves doing light repair work. So uh, let us know if there's any way we can help you or serve you because that's part of what it means for us to be the church together and be the body together. So uh, especially if you're new, I hope you experience a little bit of the things that we're about, which is connecting people to God, to each other, engaging our world for good. That's kind of what we're about. So uh, today is uh, uh, kind of our last week of our series uh, called Soar. If you're new, the idea behind Soar is that uh, God made us to soar. That is, God made us to be full of his character, his grace, his truth, his mercy, that we might then demonstrate that character, grace, mercy, every season, all kinds of situations, no matter what we're up against. Uh, but the problem is, of course, that there's all kinds of things that war against us soaring. There's uh, the grind of everyday life. There's the major challenges that set us back occasionally. And then there's the stuff inside each one of us that doesn't quite comply with God's soaring that we kind of wrestle with or resist God's call to soar. So we've been looking at different stories in the scripture of people who soar in all kinds of circumstances. They're up against uh, lions, tigers, bears. There's challenges around them. There's challenges inside them. And what we see is that soaring is not contingent on circumstances Soaring is contingent on remaining rooted, anchored in the God who is God over every circumstance, even when our path leads us to the darkest paths, just like it did for Jesus. So today we're going to kind of close out this series by uh, probably where we should have started, actually. We're kind of doing some reverse engineering. Today we're going to talk about what are the habits and the practices we need to have in our lives in an ongoing way in order to soar. And what we're going to say today is that soaring requires pre-flight work. In order for us to soar, to really be the people that God made us to be in all these different circumstances, there is work that we have to do before the Lord and invite the Lord to do in us in order that we might actually soar the way that God designed us to. Well, about 10 and a half years ago, I interviewed for the lead pastor here at Chatham Community Church job. And uh, the interview process was long and uh, robust and ongoing. And uh, the centerpiece of that interview process was a day-long interview. It was like... Eight until, I don't know, one in the morning with like a hanging, swinging light bulb like over my head the whole time. And, and uh, the search team was great and the process was actually great too. And, and one of the guys on the search team was named Seth Noble. Seth and his wife were a part of our church. They moved for a job a couple years after I got here. Uh, but Seth and I bonded at one point during the day-long interview process when during a break, we both realized that each other knew the entire, all the lyrics word for word to Ice Ice Baby, the great 90s hit. And so during a break, during the interview process, he and I sang the whole song word for word, Ice Ice Baby, all the way through from beginning to end. And that's how I became lead pastor at Chatham Community Church. That's pretty much how it sealed the deal. Now, a couple of weeks after I got here, Seth and his wife, Cheryl, had, me, had us over for dinner. And uh, shortly into the dinner time conversation, it did not take long to realize that in spite of our common love for bad 90s pop songs, Seth and I were very, very different human beings. The next weekend, Seth and his whole family were going to head up to Ohio to see some family. And what that meant for Seth was, all week long, he was going to spend hours over the family vehicle checking dozens of points of potential failure. He was going to check uh, oil levels, windshield wiper fluid, uh, tire pressure. He was going to check gauges and hoses. And I started to glaze over at some point, like not caring about all the things he was going to check for hours and hours and hours. He was going to spend so much time in the garage preparing for this thing, right? Now, this is in contrast to me. I'm going on a big trip. I throw a thing in a bag. I throw the kids in the trunk. I mean, not the kids in the trunk, sorry. The, the baggage in the trunk. 
Freudian slip there. Sometimes I want to throw the kids in the trunk. I throw the, I throw the baggage in the trunk. I throw the kids in the car, maybe the dog. And then I get in the car and realize the oil has not been changed in like six, three, three months overdue. The brakes have been squeaking for weeks. Uh, the air conditioning's been kind of flaky. And I got just enough gas to maybe get to the gas station. That's my level of preparation. But the thing about Seth was before he went on a trip, he was going to make sure that nothing got in the way. Before he kind of, on the way, he was going to make sure he and his family got safely to the destination. Here's the good news. Jesus loves to attend to our souls. To make sure that nothing's going to get in the way of us doing the work with him and in him that he wants us to do. He is so committed to your journey and the journey with you that he will walk with you all the way, all the way. My Savior leads me, like we just sang. So that you might be a man or woman who soars. Because you were made to soar. But everything that the scripture calls sin gunks us up, trips us up, weighs us down, anchors us here on the ground. And what the scriptures tell us is that God so loved you. He was committed and so committed to you, soaring the way he designed you to, that he sent his son to set you free so that your sin and my sin might not be the defining characteristic in our lives. What, isn't it good news? Isn't it good news that your sin and your mistake does not have to be the limiting factor to how high you can soar and who you can be? Isn't that good news? Because none of us want that, right? None of us wants our worst moments and our worst characteristics to be the limiting factor on our lives, to who we, who we can become and what we can be. You don't even have to be a Jesus person to say, I don't want my worst sin, my worst mistakes to be the limiting factor, the defining factor of my life. Good news, God doesn't want that for you either. The Lord in his grace and mercy, does not want you and your worst moment to be the most defining moment of your life. He wants grace and mercy and forgiveness to be that thing. And that's what we see as we turn to John 21. If you've got a Bible, turn me to John 21. A quick little backstory before we pop in to, to John 21, the, uh, the good news of God's grace and mercy to us. So here's what happens in John 21. A couple of days earlier, Jesus is crucified. And as Jesus is arrested and carried off, Peter follows behind him. And he's in a courtyard warming himself by a fire. It's late at night. And Jesus is inside kind of being run through that mock trial. And around the courtyard, someone recognizes him. Like, hey, you're with Jesus. He says, no, I, no I'm not. No, I wasn't. No, I was not. Three times, the rooster crows. Just like Jesus said he would do, Peter goes out and weeps. He's bitter, regretful, shame-filled tears. He weeps those bitter, regretful, shame-filled tears for days until third day. Jesus appears, a resurrected body. It's a different body, but it's still recognizably Jesus, a resurrected, perfected body. And there's multiple appearances along the way before we get to John 21. By the time we get to John 21, there's one more appearance that Jesus needs to make because Peter was made to soar. But there's some work that Jesus has to do to free him to soar from the mistake he made to be set free so that his sin and his mistake isn't the defining factor of his life, isn't the defining action of his life. So at the beginning of John 21, Peter says to some, some of his buddies, some of the fellow disciples, I'm going fishing. So they all go together. That's what they know. That's what they do. They don't catch anything all night long. You go fishing at night because that's when the fish are biting. They don't catch anything all night long. Early in the morning, as a guy on the beach says, have you caught anything? They say, no, shut up. And Jesus, the guy on the beach says, hey, throw your, throw your, uh, throw your net on the right side. They, they do, and they catch a massive amount of fish. And John, the disciple on the boat, says, that's Jesus. That's so quintessentially Jesus. Peter jumps in, swims to shore. Jesus has got breakfast cooking. And so in John 21, they've just wrapped up breakfast. And, and Jesus turns to Peter because he wants to set Peter free from the worst mistake of his life so that he might be set free to soar. John 21, starting in verse 15. This is, what, this is how Jesus deals with Peter's mistake. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. That's Jesus predicting Peter's death. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. About uh, five years, six years ago, I purchased a used Volkswagen Jetta. It's been a nice little car for me. But a couple years after I purchased it, uh, the, the stereo died. Now, the stereo was nice. It had a nice big bright display and, you know, kind of color, beautiful display. And you turn it on, it like, ooh, look, it, it, was, it was popped and it's shiny. It was like very nice. But then it totally flaked out. It was all dark and nothing was coming through the speakers. And I'm pushing buttons and trying to get to work and wake it up. But nothing's happening. So I take it to the shop and the, and the people say, nice stereo. It's going to cost you $5,000 to replace it. I paid $12,000 for the car. Not sure I want to replace the stereo for $5,000. So I got a $50 Bluetooth speaker and done, right? If you think of my, so my phone traveling around that's how it is so I'm driving around with this dead stereo staring at me my Bluetooth speaker whatever and a few months later my battery dies annoying but it happens so I go get the battery replaced six months later the battery dies again and so I take it to the shop I say I don't know anything about cars zero I know nothing about cars okay so true confession some of you are like eh, he doesn't know anything about cars what a loser what a pastor but I don't know so there it is I don't know anything about cars but I know this isn't right. I know batteries shouldn't die for six months. And so, they, so they, they open up the hood and get all into it. And they say to me, listen, the stereo that looked dead, still sucking energy. Still draining the battery all the time. It's always on. So we had to cut the cord. We had to pull the plug to make sure that it wasn't sucking energy. It looked dead. It wasn't, there was no active problem that I could see. But it had gone underground and it was still draining energy, still draining battery. Jesus knows Peter's failure. He knows your failure. He knows my failure. And the failure was a few days ago. It's not front and center. Peter hasn't continued to deny Jesus. But my friends, sin that is not dealt with still drains battery. Spiritual energies, emotional energies, psychological energies, even physically it can affect us. And so Jesus is going to pop the hood on Peter, get in there and pull the plug and deal all the way to the roots of the mistake he made, the sin he, com he committed against Jesus. Because he wants Peter to soar. Now it starts when they finished eating, right? At the, at, the begin, at the end of this meal. Now, who you ate with in the ancient world was a really, really big deal. Like in biblical times, a Jew could not eat any meal with a non-Jew, even if it was like a business partner or a friend. You could not eat a meal with someone who wasn't a Jew. And if you had a conflict with someone, sometimes you would have these peace meals, these celebrations when you reconciled, when you worked through the problem. Remember the prodigal son story? The father throws a great big party. There's a meal to celebrate. Hey, we were once separate. But now we're family again. And so Jesus sets out this piecemeal, this breakfast together. They're eating together. They're, the, the disciples are together with Jesus and they're in awe of the crazy great news. Jesus was dead and here he is right there in front of them. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's more than they can possibly process. And maybe just maybe in Peter's mind, Jesus says, maybe the whole thing that I did a couple days ago, maybe Jesus is going to kind of put that in the past. Maybe this is the piecemeal. Maybe we're okay. Maybe this is Jesus saying to me in an indirect way, we don't need to do with it. Let the past be in the past and we'll let that go back and this no longer affects us. Maybe we're cool. Maybe Jesus is saying to me right here, maybe this is Peter thinking. Peter's thinking, maybe we're okay. We're eating this meal together because this is how some of us would like to deal with our sin, right? Can we just forget about it? Just kind of move on, leave it in the past. But here's what's true. 
What's true is we all make mistakes, we all sin, but you weren't made for it. Sin is this alien parasite. It's a destructive alien parasite that we don't know what to do with, even psychologically, emotionally. We don't know what to do with sin because you weren't made to process it. It's just not how we're wired. And so what happens is we all have these weird, funky workarounds that don't actually work, and actually they ground us and they keep us from soaring. Some of us, when we sin, we just try to minimize, 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 minimize. I didn't do it, not my fault. Deflect someone else's circumstances, someone else's problem, right, right. So all this externalizing, all this minimalization, we don't actually acknowledge that we did anything wrong. All I gotta say is if you can't acknowledge your sin, you're never gonna soar. Others of us, we don't do that. We prefer to say, well, I made a mistake, but it's in the past. Can we just leave it in the past? Do I have to dredge it up? Do I have to talk about it? Do I have to sort of stir it up? Can't we just leave it all behind and move forward? And maybe over breakfast, Peter's hoping that Jesus is saying, well, let's just move forward. Let's just move on. Maybe we can kind of move forward together. But Jesus says, not so fast. Because even if your sin has in the past and buried, even if it doesn't look alive, even if it's not ongoing, it's just gone underground. Unless you deal with it, it continues to drain energy, suck battery, suck life out of you and ground you and keep you from soaring. So what Jesus does is he kind of reruns Peter through, his, through a gauntlet of recalling Peter. He recalls Peter. When Jesus first met Peter, his name was Simon, son of John. And so Peter says to him, so Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, you were a fisherman when I called you. You just came in from fishing. Your name was Simon, son of John, when I met you. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, I'm going to meet you again, right where you were about three years ago when I called you. I'm going to recall you by that name. I'm going to recall you to follow me. I'm going to do it three times. It's going to hurt, but that's how it's going to be. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's actually meaning the rest of the disciples because here's the contrast. A, a, a few hours before Peter had denied Jesus, Peter said, looked around the room and said, even if all these losers abandon you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He had said that just a few hours before he denied him three times. And when the pressure came, he didn't quite stand up so well. And so this time, Peter says in a much more humble, I think, tone and posture, he says, uh, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus replies with an interesting response. It's not exactly forgiveness, right? But he says, well, listen, he gives him a job to do. He kind of recalls him. He says, look, feed my lambs. This pattern repeats a second time and a third time. Simon, son of John, the name you had three years ago before I called you, I'm recalling you. Do you love me? And Peter humbly, insistently says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the third time it says, uh, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you Love me. So Peter gets a little bit more emphatic. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus again closes with his calling. Feed my sheep. See, Peter is hurt that Jesus or asks him a third time, do you love me? And, we, and this is part of why we don't want to deal with our sin in the past. We don't want to have to relive it. We don't have to go through it. We don't want to surface it. But my friends, whenever Jesus is sort of surfacing our sin, it's never to do, sort of inflict more damage. This is like the spiritual surgery required for healing. Put another way, Jesus never surfaces our sin to shame us. Jesus surfaces our sin to free us. That's why he asks three times. That's why he comes to you and to me and says, I know that you don't want to deal with this, but I want to set you free. I don't want to, I'm not trying to get you to relive in this or get stuck in this. I'm trying to set you free from 
because see, shame freezes us, right? What shame is, shame is a title, a name. It's like, I did, the thing that I did makes me a bad person. That's what shame is, right? Shame is like, who I am is wrong. It's off. It's, it's misguided somewhere. And so shame is what freezes us. We get stuck in identity. I am my worst mistake. I relive this over and over and over again. And so Jesus doesn't deal in shame. Jesus doesn't speak in shame. Anything that's shame is not of Jesus, not of his spirit. Jesus speaks in truth and conviction to surface sin, not that you get stuck in it and wallow in it, but that you might be set free from it. Confession, repentance, restoration, making things right again, reconciliation, asking for forgiveness, making amends, bringing healing wherever you can. This is the work that sets you free. Jesus surfaces our sin not to shame us, but to set us free from it. That's why he calls us to repentance, to return to him over and over and over again. And that freedom is not the freedom of our culture, right? Our culture thinks freedom is free to do whatever I want any old time. That's not freedom, nor is it freedom to pretend that your sin doesn't have consequences or hurt people. It's not that kind of freedom either. It's the freedom that comes through confession that sets you free from the weight of sin, the drain of sin that sets you free to soar. So Jesus is not just gonna move on and pretend that nothing happened with Peter. Three times Peter's an item. Three times he asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, what's true? Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you. Like, and, and it's true, Jesus knows all the things. He knows Peter's heart. He knows how bitterly Peter wept after he denied him. Uh, Peter, Jesus knows that Peter is sorry about that. Peter knows that Jesus does love him. And for, and, and for some of us, we think that should be enough, right? Isn't that enough? Like, if I do something wrong, I feel bad about it. The person that I hurt knows that I feel bad about it. The person that I know, know, that I know and that I hurt knows that I love them. Isn't that enough? And I see this in marriages all the time. I'll meet with people in marriage trouble all the time. And there's almost always a backlog of pain, hurt, sort of circumstances. And there's almost always one person, sometimes both parties, who don't want to deal with that backlog, right? They don't want to, ever, they don't want to have to rehearse or redress or deal with any of those things. They just want to move forward and move on. And they say, well, listen, th th this person, they know that I, I feel bad about that or that I feel bad about things I've done. And they know that I actually love them. Can't we just move forward? And Jesus says, not if you want to soar, it's not enough. If you want to soar in relationship with a spouse, or with the Lord, there is, there are, old things have to be severed from your spirit, from your heart, have to be cut free so that you might soar in your relationship with the spouse and with the Lord. And so Jesus surfaces three times with Peter asking the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because Peter was made to soar. In just a handful of weeks, here's what Peter's going to do. In just a handful of weeks, Peter's going to give maybe the most consequential sermon or speech in human history. He's going to give a sermon or speech that's going to launch the church 2,000 years later. We're here in Chatham County, North Carolina, a place they couldn't even imagine existed, worshiping the same Jesus Peter did because of his speech he's going to give just a handful of weeks later. He is going to soar and hit the highest, maybe one of the highest moments in human history is going to be launched by this same Peter. But in order for Peter to soar, he's got to be cut from the baggage of the mistake that he made and the sin that he committed against Jesus. So he's going to deal with it lovingly. Directly. So here's what I want to propose. I want to propose there's two equal and opposite errors that we do when it comes to sin. Remember this foreign parasite, we weren't made for it, so we try to manage around it as best we possibly can. Two equal and opposite errors. The first one is forget about it approach, and the other one is frozen in it. That's the equal and opposite error, right? Forget about it is let's minimize it, let's sort of put it in the past, let's move on, let's try to pretend, like turn it down as much as possible and hope it goes away. 
That's the underactive conscience, we'll call that. And then there's the overactive conscience, where some of you are still stuck in the same moments over and over and over again. It doesn't take much to rehearse and remind and remember sort of a mistake you made, a, a thing that you did that you sort of get stuck in over and over and over again. Several years ago, there was a, uh, a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. It was written by a Dutch researcher whose name I cannot pronounce, but trust me, it's cool. And this book has become sort of the Bible on uh, trauma. It's become like sort of the, the defining sort of uh, book on trauma, how people deal with trauma, called The Body Keeps the Score. And he started in the 80s working with Vietnam vets and dealing with PTSD and helping them overcome PTSD. And his premise is this, that when you experience major trauma, your brain goes on high alert. And if it's really, really, really major, really, really significant trauma, what happens is even after the event is over, you don't turn off. Your body keeps the score. Your body is still on high alert, even though the threat may have passed. And so what happens is it only takes like a, 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 a phrase, a sound, a word to trigger, right, trigger event, to trigger the trauma all over again of your body going into high alert, red alert, all over again. Your body keeps the score unhealthily, unhealthily. You're still stuck in that moment mentally and emotionally, and your body is still on just a breath away from high red alert. In fact, one of the ways your body processes all the events of the day is through REM sleep. REM sleep is sort of how your body kind of takes the events of the day and kind of shelves them and files them away and puts them away. If you've experienced major trauma, you can't get to REM sleep. Your body actually never quite kind of processes it and puts it away. It comes down from high red alert. That's what trauma does to people. And so one of the ways he proposes that you fix this is totally counterintuitive. He says, here's what you got to do. You got to wade all the way back through that story all over again, blow by blow, bit by bit, all the hard parts all over again with a therapist guided, thinking you through it, deliberate, voluntarily walking back through the trauma. And it's like a, it's like a horror movie you watch 16 times over. By the 16th time, you don't jump anymore, right? Brings you down. Just take some work, but you have to walk back through it. You have to walk back through the trauma to, to be set free from the trauma so that your brain comes down a high red alert. For some of you, this trauma event is something you said, you did. Like Peter ran his mouth a lot. He said lots of stupid things, but the denial of Jesus was like the high point of his stupidity, like one of his worst moments of his life, right? So some of you, you've got these moments, and, and it doesn't take much for you to relive and recycle and reloop through those same things, not in a healthy way, not in a constructive way, not in a voluntary, deliberately walking through kind of a way. You just feel the shame and the guilt over and over and over again. You are frozen in it. So here's what we got. God creates this very good world. Into this very good world comes this parasite sin that we don't know what to do with. And so we end up with kind of processing it, either minimizing it and forgetting it or frozen in it and stuck in it. And what Jesus does in his grace and mercy is he comes and he offers a new power, a new alternative. To those of us who want to say, forget about our sin, Jesus says, no, 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 let's not forget about your sin. Let's forgive your sin. That's much better, isn't it? Not forget you did something wrong. Forgive the fact that you did do something wrong. Not minimize it, not justify it, not excuse it. Forgive it. There's a huge difference. This is a great phrase. Huge difference between excusing something and forgiving something. Jesus does not excuse us. He forgives us. That's much more powerful. We're not going to forget sin. We're going to forgive sin. And to those of us who are frozen in it, no, 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 you're not frozen in it. You are forgiven of it. You are set free from it. Shame is not your name. Your mistake is not defining your life. This is not the most important event in your life. The most important event in your life, when you accept Jesus Christ, the most important event in your life is the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago. That's the most important event in your life. Welcome home. Welcome to Jesus. Your mistakes don't define you anymore. 
Your sin doesn't define you anymore. The most significant event in your life is not something that happened in your life. It's what Jesus did before you were alive. To set you free, so that sin and shame no longer define you, and so that you no longer have to do either one of these bad options for how to manage the sin problem and the problem of sin, because God made you to soar. He delights in you soaring. Sin grounds us. It gunks up the system. It gunks up our works. And so trying to forget it doesn't help us to soar. Trying to minimize it doesn't help us to soar. And being stuck in it, being haunted by it, that too doesn't help us to soar. So the parasite of sin introduces this really powerful toxin into the world that we can't process, we can't handle. And so what happens is when sin introduces sin and death into our lives, the shame and the regret into our lives, what God does in Jesus is introduce a totally new, a totally new power into the ecosystem. Into the ecosystem corrupted by sin and death, he introduces Jesus' blood and his resurrection. So, my friends, there's two forces in the world. You've got to pick which one you're going to be aligned with. There's sin and death that would hijack, steal, kill, destroy your life, destroy everything that matters to you. And then there is the powerful, the powerful venom, the powerful antidote of Jesus' life. His sacrifice on the cross, the blood of Christ to wash you clean of all sin. And his resurrection power to conquer death, to offer you new life so that your worst mistakes and your worst sins do not define you any longer. The life of Christ does. Forgiveness does. Grace does. And mercy does. But to access this power, it requires vulnerability. you got to pop the hood. Let Jesus monkey around. Unearth the sin. Name it. Unplug it from the system so that it doesn't drain your batteries spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally. It requires that we open ourselves up to Jesus and often to one another, that that grace and mercy might intersect our lives in ways that actually matter. So my friends, this morning, the invitation is into a swap, your sin for Jesus' soaring. That's a good deal, isn't it? What a great deal. Your sin, your worst mistakes, all the stuff you don't like about yourself, all the stuff that you shouldn't like about yourself for the soaring of Christ. Peter was designed for soaring. He's going to launch the biggest movement in world history in just a few weeks. But he has sinned against Jesus. It required some opening of the hood, doing the swap, his shame, his mistake for Jesus' grace. Good news, my friend. Here's the good news. Nothing that you have done or has been done to you can keep you from who God made you to be and what God designed you to do. Nothing that you have done or has been done to you can be the thing that keeps you from who God made you to be and what God made you to do. Nothing that you have done or has been done to you can keep you from becoming who God made you to be and what God made you to do. There's a power greater than sin and mistakes at work in the world. His name is Jesus. He invites you to swap out that pain, that shame, those mistakes, those sins, for his grace. That's the invitation. This summer, many of you know, I was on sabbatical for eight weeks, and uh, I, I shared this before. I hired a, a coach to ask me all the annoying questions about me and to uh, kick over all the rocks and deal with any squiggly things underneath. In the next five years, I have four kids going off to college or leaving the house, and I crossed over the magical number of 50, the magical 50 mark. I hear it's great there. Is that true? 50-year-olds plus? Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, thumbs up. Thank you. I need, that re I need that reassurance. Thank you. So the next five years, I'm getting rid of four kids. Not getting rid of. Sorry. Whew, my, my kids are having a rough day. I'm shipping off four kids. Shipping off four kids. That's a better verb. Shipping off four kids. Crossing over the magical 50 mark. 
all kinds of transition ahead. And so I had this great gift of eight weeks the church gave me. And so I wanted to hire someone to kick over all the rocks, deal with all the stuff. How could I be as healthy as I possibly can be in this season so I could soar into this, this transition to empty nesting, into 50 plus, and make sure that I'm honoring God, honoring my wife, loving my kids, and loving y'all as best I possibly can. And I was telling a friend of mine about this this past week. I haven't talked to him in a long time. I told him about like, yeah, I went on sabbatical and I hired a coach and he asked me all these annoying, grating, difficult questions. And there was all these squiggly things I had to deal with. He says, that sounds a little bit crazy. And I said to him, what else would I do? What else would I do? I had to get to eight weeks to get as healthy as I can be for this crazy time of transition in the next five years. What else would I do but invite Jesus into my life pop the hood and say, what needs to change here so I can be as healthy as I possibly can be? So I can love you, God. So I can love y'all. So I can love my wife, my kids, as best I possibly can. What else would I do but, but take Jesus up on his invitation to soar, open myself up, see what God wants to do? In just a few minutes, we're going to come to the peace table, communion. We're going to celebrate this meal together. This is God's peace table set for you. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, intangible, concrete representatives, items to kind of help us to anchor our hearts and, and get a hold of his grace and mercy in deeper and deeper ways. And so this morning, as we gather together around his peace table, I'm going to give you just a minute to enter into this swap. What sin for grace swap do you need to make with Jesus here this morning in order to soar? What, what, what might Jesus want to surface in you this morning that he says, hey, I'll take that if you'll let it go? And here, in exchange, I want to give you my grace. I want to give you my mercy. It could be some run-of-the-mill stuff, right? It could be that you snapped at some kids or a spouse this morning. Uh, it could be that this week you felt your, like, your jealousy or your resentment or some pride or some entitlement kind of running the show. It could be that this week you realized you were looking at a neighbor or coworker in ways that weren't honoring to that neighbor or coworker or honoring to your spouse. There could be some things that go on. Here's the deal. Like, like when it comes to sin, we're not that creative. When it comes to sin, you are not that creative. Peter had run his mouth plenty throughout the course of his life. It just, he really blew it this one time, right? But here's the deal. You, by the time you get to like your mid-30s, you are pretty much rutted the same sin things you're going to fall into over and over and over again. You're going to fall in the same sin ruts over and over again. You're not that creative. I'm sorry to tell you. And the Lord is patient with us as we fall into the same sin ruts over and over and over again. But it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Because here's the invitation. The invitation as we fall into those same sin ruts is to bring it to Jesus, acknowledge it, confess it. Not, not a whole lot of shame, not a whole lot of baggage around us. Like, oh, Lord, there it is again. Listen, here's the good news. God is never surprised when you sin. Merry Christmas early. I am all the time. I can't believe I did that. God never says, I can't believe he didn't do that. I can't believe he did that. God's never surprised. God is never surprised when we sin. He's sorrow. He's sorrowful. He is sad. And he says, Come to me, come to me, come to me. Bring your stuff with you. I want to forgive you of it. And as we keep coming back to Jesus with the same stuff, oh, there it is, Lord, forgive me. Sometimes what he does is starts to feel like layers and layers and layers. Because there's often a thing underneath the thing. There's the thing you do. There's the external expression of sin. There's a thought life that's not quite healthy. Or there's the things that you do. But there's often a thing underneath the thing. There's often something inside your heart that's a little bit broken, a motive or a thought or a thing that you're chasing after that needs to be corrected. And so part of the value of keep coming back to God with the same sin patterns that you have over and over and over again is just, okay, God, here it is again. You want to show me a thing underneath this thing? You want to peel back a layer of this? Because I need to kind of keep shedding this weight so that I might soar. So some of you got some run-of-the-mill stuff that you need to kind of acknowledge to the Lord here today. Like, ah, Lord, this week's been this, this, this. Here's where I've been mentally. Here's what I've done this week. It's just sort of normal stuff. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Or it could be something, a sin that you've been really tangled up in for a while, days, weeks, months, decades. And maybe you're new to church. We're so glad you're here. 
And maybe you're new to church, and maybe you're not sure you want to pop the hood and let God mess around underneath the hood. And maybe you do. Maybe you can hear the good news that God wants to surface your gunk, not to shame you, but to set you free from it, to rescue you. Or maybe you're tangled up in some sin patterns, it's been going on for a long time, and you've been coming to church. You're here, like on the regular. You're like a church person, and you've got sin kind of stuff over here. Maybe not, not many people know about it. Maybe nobody knows about it. I'm showing up at church on Sundays. I got this thing over here, right? Like, you know, if you see the Godfather, that's kind of how it is. Like, you're not like the Godfather. You're not killing people. But, you know, you're, like, you're showing up at church on Sunday morning. You've got stuff going on during the week, and you, and you kind of live in this dual life, right? And maybe you saw that at home growing up. It was like church was like Vegas. What happened at church stayed at church. It didn't really matter in the rest of your life. But you're showing up at church. And you got another life over here. And maybe you think, like, like Peter around the breakfast table, hey, it doesn't matter. God seems to be cool with me anyway. I'm here to tell you the good news. God is not cool with you living two lives. I'm here to tell you the good news. Today, he's telling you he cares. He cares if you're living two lives. He cares if there's stuff that you've got in the background, even if it had been in the background for years and years and decades. Jesus says, do you love me? You, this morning, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Or maybe like Peter, a couple days ago, weeks ago, months ago, years ago, major, major thing you did or didn't do. Like major, right? And you're trying all you can to minimize it, try to forget about it, or you end up recycling it, rehearsing it, and there's this high point of badness in your life, a thing that you regret more than any thing else and that event is draining you right it's still pulling at you it's still weighing you down my friend the resurrected king has come here this morning to meet you this morning i've been sent here to tell you some really good news there's nothing you can do with more power than the cross there is nothing you can do with more powerful than the cross your sin is not that powerful bless the lord the blood of christ the blood of christ has the last word even over your worst mistakes there's an invitation to swap out that worst mistake for the forgiveness, the grace and mercy of Jesus. There's one more category I want to touch on. It's a little bit odd, but I think it's an important one. That the scriptures talk about generational sins. That is that sins get repeated from grandparents to parents to grandkids. It just sort of happens over generations, right? And like the scriptures talk about this. And then like 150 years ago, modern psychology says, oh, look, there's generations that get do the same patterns over and over again. I wish we'd known. I'm like, well, they knew. The scriptures talk about this. And maybe you know in your family, there's generations of stuff that you don't want to repeat, at least on your best moments. And maybe you're already in it. Maybe you're like, oh man, I said I didn't want to do this. My, my, mom, my mom did this, my dad did this, my grandparents did this. I don't want to do this, but yet here you are, you're up in it. Or maybe you're not up in it yet, but you know it's always there. You feel the, the allure, the draw, that weird, unhealthy draw to like, oh, I just want to repeat the same mistakes. My friends, here's the good news. Here's the good news. The resurrected king has the power even to break generational curses and generational sins set you free. Whether you're in it already or not yet in it, there's, there's a power greater than what your parents did or your grandparents did to set you free. What sin for grace swap do you need to make this morning in order for you to soar? Maybe this is your first time ever praying or first time praying this type of prayer. Good news, good news, good news. Jesus is here for you to set you free, to invite you into his freedom to soar. I'm going to give you a minute before we move to communion to pray that prayer. What sin for grace swap do you need to make with Jesus today in order for you to soar? Let me pray for us. Open us. I'm going to give you a minute. Silence. Do whatever business you do with the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace. You know our resistance to soaring. You know our resistance to popping the hood and letting you have access. But now for just this next minute, Lord Jesus, we open up our hearts and our minds and our spirits, our family histories, and we invite you to do whatever work you want to do. Take a minute now to make this exchange with Jesus. Jesus, thank you that we can trust you with the things that we have just acknowledged before you. Thank you that you come, surface our sin, not to shame us, but to free us. We willingly open up our hands, open up our hearts, and relent, surrender to the grace and mercy that rushes to meet us, to set us free, that we might soar in you, with you.